Hey everyone, you're listening to Angel Nears the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Ole Kujikov, and our guest today is Nikolai Baldin. He's the co-founder and CEO at Synthesized, a startup built by machine learning researchers from the University of Cambridge. Today, we're going to talk about Nikolai's experiences of facing and overcoming challenges as a first-time founder. But before we get to that, Nikolai, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Yeah, real excited to talk today. To get us started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So my background is, uh, well, essentially quite technical. I did my PhD at Cambridge in machine learning and statistics, spent some time at Stanford in the US in the stats department there as well. And I uh, used to work for a hedge fund uh, from New York before I started the company with uh, my co-founder about uh, three years ago. And can you tell us what inspired you to start a company? That's a great question. I'd been working in machine learning and statistics for the last eight years and have collaborated with the uh, biggest financial institutions in the US and healthcare institutions in the in the UK as well. And I was actually you not know, like working on some sophisticated deep learning methods in early 2011, building recurrent neural networks with uh, CPUs and Newton methods before GPUs and stochastic gradient descent became the thing. And, you know, like while I was working on some of the, you know, like interesting areas in ML, I became frustrated by the difficulty of obtaining quality data sets to compliance barriers and realize how massive the gap is between what the scientific community has developed and what it actually delivered to the rest of the world mostly because of lack of infrastructure and uh, communication with data. So I end up spending maybe like 50% of my time on trying to figure out how I can get access to the right data sets and how I can use them in ML development and testing. And uh, that's how I guess the idea for Synthesize was born about three years ago. Can you tell me more about how you saw a deficiency in what was being sort of advertised and what was being delivered. I imagine you were working with a lot of these tools and algorithms really closely. So you probably have a deeper understanding than I do, certainly. You know, like we've seen lots of tools around, I guess, automating and helping automate some of the ML development cycles. However, the problem of data ops and uh, essentially data infrastructure hasn't been actually looked into by many companies yet. And uh, when you go into, say, a big company or a healthcare institution or financial services company, you immediately think about, okay, how I'm going to essentially solve a given problem. And I need to think about different models. I need to think about like different tests, etc. However, you end up spending most of the time initially on trying to get access to the right data sets, trying to prepare them, trying to provision them to, to you for, for a given task. And we really didn't really, I really didn't see any a solution I was I was comfortable with and I think still many companies actually use manual processes to essentially provision and prepare data sets for ML development and testing purposes. On your website it says that Synthesized is on a mission to empower data scientists with the highest quality data for development and testing purposes. Can you tell me why is there a need out there in the market for this and and what are you trying to do that's different from your competitors? That's a great question. So you know what typically happens is that data scientists and ML engineers typically spend more than 50% of their time on essentially trying to get access on prepared data sets, whereas that's the, the time is very expensive. And what we try to do is really make the most, some of the most expensive resources in the company more efficient. And the other problem we saw is that also, you know, like maybe like 60 to 70% of data internally within an enterprise is actually underutilized. 
So you don't really know how much value is in that because people haven't really thought about, okay, how are we going to measure value of the data and how we can unlock it again for development purposes and testing. I know it's quite fascinating that even if you use some, again, like some sophisticated ML or data science sort of engine or model, right? So you're still not really sure like whether you're utilizing your data sets to its full potentials and you still need to work on making sure that all the data sets are provisioned, prepared, and really kind of at the stage where whereby they can be you know, like used to their full potential. And uh, that's the problem we saw when uh, it, it hasn't been addressed yet. So the kind of, we've seen this kind of new emergent trend, which is data as a service. So it's, it's really getting more attention right now. But about three years ago, it was very little. So there was like famous notion, which is, okay, software, uh, software is becoming as a service, right? It's eating the world. So right now, I think we are in the stage where kind of data is becoming as a service, essentially, and data is eating the world. And this is the space we, we are in right now. Let's dive into that a little bit more because it's such an interesting topic that keeps coming up of like data needs to be clean, more clean data. As I understand it, we measure things all the time as humans. We have no shortage of ways to measure things. I can't imagine that we don't have enough data, but can you explain the challenge more of taking the data that we have and the way that we measure it and transforming that into clean data that we want to work with? Why is that so challenging? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, like, I like to pose it as a, as a question, which is, okay, you have, say, like a data set about some transactional history in the bank or maybe some health, electronic health records in a healthcare company. And uh, the question is, okay, you have, say, X rows and uh, Y columns, but what if, say, I remove 20% of rows in this data set? Does it mean that the value of the data set is going to be 20% lower? And... The, the answer is typically, well, I mean, we don't know, right? So we don't really know how much value in a given subset, subsample of my, of my data and how it's going to impact an ML model or essentially a testing task. And this uncertainty about the quality, but in a way, high dimensional quality of your data set hasn't been, well, hasn't been addressed yet. And this is what we are doing right now. And again, like this is quite fascinating, right? So like, and what we're seeing is that you have so much abundance of data and it's underutilized because... Most of it is actually, you don't really know how to measure. You don't really know how to measure the value of, of the data in terms of you know, like the prediction performance, in terms of the testing performance, in terms, of the, in terms of its power on different predictive analytics. And uh, this is where we help companies at the moment as well. So I'm going to do my best to dumb that down really quick. I think what you're saying is that the challenge of understanding your data, understanding where the value comes from is it's subjective and we don't really know until after the the model is finished, like what kind of effect it's had. Like you mentioned, you could take out a subset from your data. So say you were flipping a coin 10 times, you got 50 or five heads, five tails. If you were to take out one heads, one tails, then your predictive model for what the result of flipping a coin would be wouldn't change at all. Uh, you, you've actually removed data, but the predictive model hasn't changed. Or you could pull out a different subset of data and then that predictive model would change. Um, where does this where does this kind of lack of understanding come from when it when it comes to these kind of questions? Where's the gap in knowledge? I think that's a great question. It might, yeah, to be honest, yeah, I don't know, but it might have been driven by sales and marketing resources uh, from big corporates emphasizing that data quality is essentially you not know, like the number of missing elements in data or maybe the number of outliers or maybe some skewness in distributions which is great, right? And that makes sense. However, so there is much more than that, right? Even if you 
remove some of the, well, somehow fill some of the missing elements, the value of your data might not really change because maybe some predictive task is independent of that sort of uh, missing pattern. And that hasn't been, hasn't been measured and that hasn't been really, in, well, I would say promoted and marketed yet. And this is where, where we kind of play with uh, synthesized at the moment. I guess the challenge that you have latched onto is not the a- analysis of the data itself. It's more of going from measuring data to what are we feeding into the, to the algorithm, right? So can you tell me more about what you're trying to do at Synthesized and a little bit more about the product and the solution? So the product we've built is uh, the so-called impossible digital sandbox with uh, data clean rooms to, again, empower any ML model or data science task. And uh, the vision of the company is to, what we want is to really democratize access to valuable data sets and uh, essentially enable, you know, like uh, smaller companies operate as efficiently as uh, big corporates. And uh, in terms of, you know, like the product itself, right, so it uh, sits between any data source, any, any database, and connects to any data science or ML pipe, essentially tools such as you know, data robot, H2, and we automate all the stages of data preparation and provisioning between a database and those ML development tools. Can you dive in and explain what's the impossible part? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I would say like the entire architecture, it consists of three pieces. So we have the foundation, which is infrastructure layer. So we have an AI core and we have a learning component of the, of the platform as well. And, uh, you know, infrastructure layer is, uh, well, is difficult, but possible. And many companies have indeed started investigating dig- different digital sandboxes, architectures. But the AI core, which really empowers it, empowers the process of data sharing and data preparation hasn't been done yet. And this is where one of our key exciting features behind the product and why it kind of allows our customers and our partners to operate 10x more efficient compared to the alternative solutions. Did we cover everything that we wanted to cover about about the company currently? Yeah, I guess we started the company with a belief that, hey, I mean, like many big corporates have a rather unfair advantage in terms of like how much data they have. And uh, again, like unlike smaller companies don't really have that. And we really want to help them compete with the bigger guys by having like better processes and better preparation and provisioning tools. But there's like the workflow, like, yeah, I can maybe like touch on that as well. Like, so in terms of the user journey, right? So like, essentially we want all data scientists, ML engineers and test engineers just have a very clear access to like just data projects. And those data projects are not just data sets, but those are essentially AI driven projects, which essentially give you quite a bit of analytics, insights about the data sets, provided with the monitoring capabilities, some AI features which allow you to play with this data set, make it more agile, make it more u- useful and efficient for, for a given task. But the platform is like very simple, right? So in the sense that, okay, you have these data projects and you don't really need to go to, say, database and get some permissions, try to write SQL queries. It's already, it's already done with the platform, right? So you can just, you know, like start your task immediately as opposed to, you know, like going through lots of manual processes of getting access to some kind of data sets and thinking about, okay, how you can essentially use them. All of that work has already been done on the platform. Awesome. So more, a little bit more of what I'm used to from college of open up a Python developing environment, import a data set, import a library, and then start hacking away at something. Exactly. But imagine that in a big corporate, it's actually not that simple. And uh, in a big corporate, you again, like have to spend maybe like weeks to again, like get permissions, get access keys, 
think about the scale queries, get data catalog, all of that. Again, like just simply before you can start a data science project. And we believe that it's, well, doesn't really make sense. And we really kind of trying to improve, improve the process and to make sure that you can just essentially automate in a simple, in a simple way, similar to the one you just explained in a, in a college. Yeah. I think the idea makes a lot of sense. How, how did you evaluate your startup idea before you dove in and decided to start a company? We started with the vision and we really believe that that's, that's inevitable and we really kind of saw it coming. So we really wanted to work on that. So we didn't really spend too much time initially on the idea validation. So we just, you know, like started building out of curiosity. And I think that's what gave us this kind of unfair advantage in the sense that our AI core is much more developed compared to any sort of alternative solutions right now. Well, simply because again, like we were super passionate about solving this problem and making the product live, making it ready for the data scientists, ML engineers and test engineers. So can you tell me more about that? Like uh, getting your product, you know, your minimum viable product, how you went from maybe building something yourself to deciding this is actually something with legs. This is something that I want to commit to hundred percent of the time. Can you just take me through how that happened? I think, you know, like I like to think about this in terms of product risk factors. So initially we kind of try to be, you know, like a little bit pragmatic and maybe, you know, like, again, like maybe because my background is uh, statistics, right? And in statistics, you always think about risks and you always think about losses. So I really kind of wanted to write down all the possible risks, uh, which this uh, idea may have and really work in the direction of eliminating those risks step by step. And uh, some of them, uh, yeah, I can just mention is that, again, the product has to be defensible, right? So there is, there is the risk that the product can be easily replicated by someone else. Then the risk is, is the product roadmap sensible? That is, the risk is that the product is not feasible to build, right? And uh, is it a new category or is it existing category? So how much market education we will need to, we'll need to do? And is the market ready, again, like for this product or there is a timing, timing risk as well? And uh, yeah, we really try to think about uh, these kind of risks at the beginning and uh, work in the direction to, to, to mitigate, mitigate them. And uh, typically, you know, like, again, like as a statistician, you assign probabilities to these risks happening. And it's normally gauged based on some previous experience working with, with these things and uh, maybe in an, in an adjacent sector. And um, that's what we kind of did for, for us and really kind of try to eliminate the most probable risk from, from the beginning. And I guess, you know, like we also we were quite pragmatic. So we knew that where we need to get to before we run out of, uh, I guess, like any sort of cash savings, any sort of energy reserves. And uh, yeah, so we kind of feel quite clear that, okay, hey, we need to basically raise, raise capital and this is where we need to get this product to, and uh, yeah, so really work in that direction. So I think we didn't really have the goal to achieve product market fit. So as I mentioned, right, so we, I don't think we, we still there. So we still, you know, like finalizing some of the like hypothesis but yeah definitely in a much comfortable position compared to the previous previous state before the fundraise but i think you know like what really kept us driving was that our understanding of how valuable this product is uh, is going to become and really working in in that direction and uh, i you know like people like to say hey i mean like you have to follow lean you have to iterate fast etc etc i would say you know like one of the main disadvantages of lean is that you sometimes become reactive you, you really kind of, you know, by iterating the idea with multiple customers, you may be easily distracted from, from your vision. And we really try to protect ourselves for, from too much noise, which is out there and really follow our vision in terms of, you know, like building, getting the product out there, making it, making it live, making it useful for data scientists and the engineers. Yeah, actually really interesting. 
sort of one of the core tenets of agile methodology is that you do start with a vision, but then that vision is kind of constantly changing based on feedback and what you hear. But it sounds like you guys are taking a counterintuitive kind of against the grain approach. And uh, it's really mm -hmm. important to you to maintain that vision, build towards that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating, actually. So, you know, like sometimes when working with enterprise clients, you get this list of different features they would like to, they would like you to deliver. And the mistake we've seen people make is that essentially you just, you know, like say, Hey, we're going to deliver this feature, say maybe in three months, six months, 12 months, doesn't really matter, but you don't really, you don't really try to kind of challenge the status quo. And you don't really think about the fact that apart from your company, all those requests, feature requests have been sent to maybe five of your competitors. And uh, a better approach to this would be, hey, I mean, like we believe that 40% of these features don't really make sense for your company and we should really replace them with 50% uh, of this, of, with these features. Well, not 50%, but yeah, with, uh, with different features to essentially, and we believe that this is how your company should develop. Again, as opposed to just following the, what customers ask you to do. And really, you know, like following the vision helps you to keep everyone aligned in the, in the team as well. That, okay, hey, like we have the vision and yeah, we are pursuing it as opposed to just essentially end, ending up being a consultancy sort of shop, trying to serve every sort of, you know, like every customer approaches you. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an approach of negotiation instead of I'm here to serve you, the customer. A customer is always right. It's like, well, what makes sense here? That's really interesting, but I actually want to go back a bit and understand better the timeline of how things came to be. So can you tell me some dates and like how maybe how long you spent before you decided to launch a minimum viable product? And then, you know, when did you start looking for funding? When did you even have the idea? Like, can you just tell me the, the timeline? As a statistician, so we like benchmarks. I would say from the moment we got all the founders together to the moment we raised the first amount of money, that was about six months. And that was about $700,000. And then it took us maybe 12 or 18 months more to raise a subsequent round of $2.8 million. And uh, the, in terms of the product timeline, I guess when we raised, when we raised this, that recent round, we were kind of in the stage where we had the SDK, we had the API, but we didn't really have the kind of, yeah, I would say unified solution. And when we raised the seed, proper seed round of $2.8 million, and that was four months ago, we already had this kind of very, very nicely looking unified product and already had quite a lot of traction and validation with the, with the market. So next, you mentioned that you co-founded the company. Can you tell me about your partners? Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm a very strong proponent of the theory that a co-founder is meant to be someone you have already known for at least maybe for at least a year. And uh, ideally, you should have gone through difficult times together and persevered together. Not only this can be incorporated into a story you, you tell to VCs and partners, but also to really help with the, dealing with the day-to-day -day work as you grow the business. And um, Dennis and I, so Dennis is my co-founder and CTO, we've known each other for the last 10 years and really seen each other's successes and failures and uh, seen lots of stuff. And uh, before we started, okay, like we decided, yeah, we, we want to start this company together. And that happened again, like maybe two, two or three years, two or three years ago. But yeah, I believe to be honest, I mean, so with the co-founders is, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very good topic. And uh, right now, again, like many of my friends ask me like, okay, how, how do I pick a co-founder, right? And uh, I like to tell a story, which is, okay, like initially Dennis and I had three different people which were meant to grow into the so-called head of research. 
well, none of them actually stayed in the company and uh, none of them is actually working with us right now, even though they started doing some work and experiments for us. But then we realized that's just not the right type of profiles and even like the role doesn't really make sense for us. In fact, I mean, so we don't believe this, uh, we're going to hire for this role in the in the near sort of 12 or even like 18 months. So and, uh, that's why I kind of become a strong proponent that, okay, like I would say like when you meet a co-founder, there are like typically, you know, like this three stages which is maybe like pre-business relationship, which is again, like ideally you should have known the person for at least a year prior to starting the business. Then there is some dating stage, right? And uh, this stage typically starts with sharing an idea you have about the business and some mild intention to keep discussing it with that person. Well, as inappropriate as it may sound, uh, but similar to when dating another person, you never say, hey, do you want to move to my house and do you want to move together together? So normally it's not advisable to ask, hey, do you want to be a co-founder? And uh, ideally after sharing the, the idea, you want to you want to have some period of dating where you can share some aspirations, share some ideas, and uh, and then you ask about the feedback and interest and entrepreneurship and things like that. But yeah, it's kind of really important again, like before you sort of make a move to kind of get to know the person a little bit better. And then finally, again, like marriage happens. And uh, yeah, I guess like when you, you've already understood the strength and weaknesses of another person, you offer some kind of a deal. Ideally, first you offer it, actually, well, actually verbally, right? So to see the reaction of the person, ideally face-to-face, and then you basically work on that to finalize things and uh, agree on a final deal to, to become, become co-founders. And um, it's funny, right? So like, it's kind of sounds straightforward, right? So just three stages, which is again, like pre-business relationship, uh, dating, m- marriage. But unfortunately, I've seen so many people do it really, really badly. And to be honest, we've made also so many mistakes and yeah, happy to, happy to share them with you as well. Let's get into that. Tell us some of some of the mistakes you've made. I guess some of them are, we've made ourselves, but some of them I've definitely seen my friends, founders of different businesses right now. So the first one is, I guess, uh, getting, getting business development people on board. And, uh, you know, like a very common type of a co-founder available on the market is, in London at least, is an MBA graduate from Oxford, Cambridge, LBS, looking to join a startup to work on a business development type of things. And uh, well, I guess while work and business for such people exists in at Series A, plus there is almost no work they can typically help with at the inception stage, right? So it's simply not the thing that uh, they spent much time on at the, at the business school, and uh, at least at least in the UK and uh, European business schools. And uh, I guess to be transparent with such people at the dating stage, it's uh, good to ask, like, how exactly do you see helping this business grow? And uh, also very important to watch out for watch for language they use. So if the person, I guess, starts with, uh, I guess, hey, I'm going to help you understand the value proposition, pain points, uh, risk mitigation, fundraising, this is just really vague stuff unrelated to the goal, which is, okay, we need to get, we need to raise a very strong seed round, right, in six or 12 months. And what they're looking for is, is hey, uh, the key challenge of the business before the seed round, a product, initial sales, and marketing. I have contacts at Bank X, uh, Insurance Y, e-commerce company that, and we'll work on quickly validating and in this proposition and closing the initial sales. Right. So basically, you're looking for a DBD person to play the role of the so-called product marketing, sales, or strategic partnership lead with a clear focus on tangible, tangible deliverables. Some other mistakes uh, so we've made is that, well, almost made is that getting co-founders who would like to help you raise capital. <laughs> At least, again, I'm not sure like uh, in California, but in Europe and the UK, you've definitely 
there are definitely lots of these profiles, which essentially like some BD people helping at least saying they will help you raise capital, right? So I guess the Facebook inception story had some, I would say, similarities, but yeah, there is, I've definitely seen many of these kind of BD people helping, well, looking to help your fundraise. And also, you know, like part-time commitments, this is a very, I guess, sensitive topic with uh, many co-founders. And uh, on, the, on the one hand, you really want all people to commit all the time to growing your baby, right? And also many investors are likely to walk away from part-time co-founders immediately. But on the other hand, people are different and have other commitments and um, people have to pay bills and, and uh Especially at the inception stage, uh, this is quite quite important. And uh, so how do you go about this, right? And uh, that's another sort of thing I've seen like people do quite badly, which is, okay, you kind of try to pursue a founder or co-founder saying, you have to leave the job, you have to do it, otherwise it's not going to work, right? Whereas to be honest, I mean, I'm more like a proponent uh, of a sort of more sort of agile maybe approach, which is, hey, like, tell me like how much are you going to deliver, say kind of in the next months, two months, three months, how much time are we looking to commit? And let's think about, okay, like whether it makes sense for us, right? And even if you have, say, like a second job or some another commitment, then yeah, I mean, let's let's think about it. But yeah, I wouldn't really just close close the door immediately and say, hey, I mean, like either you join the company or you, you go to investment bank. The, yeah, that's quite common. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think the the all in or all out mentality, it leaves a lot on the table. I'm recording this podcast, taking a break from my full time job. I think uh, my boss might not be super excited to hear that I'm working outside of work on something else. But it's also valuable for just my mental health and being a well rounded person to do things that aren't just working at a startup. So I think that's a really interesting challenge. And finding the right balance is is certainly a challenge, but uh, thanks for sharing that. Uh, let's talk about roles. And so next, I want to ask about how you decided what you and your co-founder would be doing. Do you do you guys kind of do you work together on the same sort of stuff? Is is one of you taking a long-term role and the other one's taking a short-term role? How do you how do you divvy up the responsibilities of running a company? I think it's very important during the dating stage already to clearly understand the roles of people in the company. So an ideal scenario I believe and I believe in and uh, what we definitely saw in the company is that there is a clear sort of understanding of what everyone is going to work on. And ideally, it should be obviously yeah, complementary and those are not really overlapping too much. So ideally, again, at the inception stage, so probably someone is going to look uh, after, say, sales and marketing. So it's normally CEO and the founder, so it synthesizes definitely myself. And uh, there should be some, of course, engineering talent, normally the CTO and the co-founder, so it's uh, Dennis in, in our case. And again, like optional, what we've seen at least in software, deep tech businesses is that there is some research talent. But again, as discussed, it's uh, sometimes, well, oftentimes, yeah, needs, need, at least uh, needs to be taken with a great care. So with all of your engineering background, you're saying you're not the engineering talent on the team? <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, that's a good question. So in terms of you know, like the product methodology, yeah, I definitely know I'm the product owner. So okay. and uh, at the moment I have, I guess, like three main KPIs and three main things I look after. So it's uh, the first one is definitely product market fit, right? So and the so I'm the product owner in the business. Then it's uh, of course sales and key partnerships, and then it's uh, making sure that we have the best people on the team, and uh, so hiring and uh, making sure we have the right advisors, advisors as well. But you know, like I realized that. And we've had three, I think, three different very senior salespeople in the organization. And uh, 
Most of them actually fail, even if they have really good understanding of the sales space, but they don't really know, they don't really know, like understand the vision and the product. Can't really say about all the salespeople, of course, but I mean, uh, it felt to me that again, like at an early stage business, the founder, the CEO, even if he's technical, has technical background, in my case, again, like PhD in computer science, maths, physics, statistics, you have to sell, you have to essentially close the first deals yourself, right? And you need, to, you need to do it in order to educate salespeople, you know, to write a sales playbook, delegate, because otherwise it's going to be a mess. Lots of miscommunication between the sales team and the founder who is trying to get some alignment on uh, what features product actually has, how we're going to sell them, what's the pricing model, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm a strong proponent that even like, even if you are computer science, smart graduate from top, one of the top universities. I mean, you have to do sales yourself first and at least maybe for definitely significant time after seed, even like series A, look after sales and marketing. For more on sales, look at our other podcasts. We have some great ones. I've read so many things and have had so many advisors. I'm even like, you know, like right now writing a blog, uh, well, blog and actually a book to collect some of the insights uh, I've had again, like from doing sales from the technical point of view, right? So straight out of academia, trying to sell to, again, like big corporates. And mm -hmm. it's quite fascinating how much you learn. And yeah, it's a very sort of exciting space to, to for self-development as well. So, you know, you come from this engineering background. How did you prepare yourself for maybe the sales side of things, but more in general, how did you prepare yourself for just the business side, uh, running a business before you launched your startup? Oh, Jesus. I broke up with my girlfriend. It's a good start. <laughs> yeah, that was the first three scratches I saw, but no, just joking. Yeah, just joking about this. Yeah, to be honest with you, you know, like when I started the business, for me, it was quite easy to, to do it because, you know, like I actually saw quite a lot of risk in terms of not actually doing it. So I had an offer from one of the biggest investment banks and I declined it simply because I actually felt like, oh no, so I'm going to end up, you know, like working for an investment bank for the next two or three years, maybe even five years. And uh, then it's going to be, you know, like much more difficult to start a business. And I really wanted to, you know, like try to essentially solve this uh, actual, actual problem as opposed to just working for someone doing some ambiguous and vague. So for me, the risk was actually really kind of uh, not starting the business. So it was a uh, I would say fairly sort of risk-free decision to start a business again, because coming from the background, so a statistical background, yeah, you know, like whatever happens, I mean, so you're always going to be well and highly demanded by lots of interesting opportunities. Uh, but to be honest with you, also, I mean, I kind of come from very humble beginnings and been working on this uh, for, I would say working on my, some of the personal and mental issues for quite a bit of time in my life. So I grew up in a very small village in uh, Siberia, actually, and then spent some time in Germany, spent some time in the UK, but always like you have to, in a way, compete and fight for what you think is right. And uh, that really helps to persevere and uh, especially in the, yeah, in the business when you have to, again, again, like compete with lots of things and uh, fight with uh, lots of, but in, in lots of battles and uh, troubleshoot lots of things. And yeah, de that definitely helps. But to be honest, I mean, like to be pragmatic again, like when you start a business, some things are really, really important, right? So like, I guess for your mental wellness and uh, mm -hmm. well-being. So definitely have a bit of cash in the bank is good, right? <laughs> have definitely people supporting you, like next to you. 
right? And uh, make sure that again, like this, those people are gonna, well, are gonna see a lot, right? They're gonna see the very bad side of you, right? And uh, make sure that yeah, they're gonna be fine with that, and they're gonna be they're prepared for it right now, and then they're gonna they're gonna help you. But also again, like pragmatically, think about you know like backup plans. Yeah. Yeah. So even even if so, you're on a mission and uh, you have great vision for the business, but just again, like for mental well-being, there are going to be like lots of situations where things are going to be tough, and having like uh, backup plans and uh, is is uh, very important. You know, like yeah, I like to say that. Hey, I mean, like in business, you have lots of luck, but at the same time, luck uh, again from the statistician's point of view is probably just maximizing it's it's like a strategy to maximize the number of successful outcomes at a given time right and uh, just thinking about it and focusing on that is, uh, is quite important so in order to maximize your success i'm sure you did some preparation for starting a company for entering the business world were you doing a lot of reading were you asking questions online on quora reddit how did you get battle ready to to start the company. Yeah, you know, like when you grow a business, many founders experience the problem of uncertainty. And definitely the one I saw is that for many, it's the first time they kick off and kickstart the business. And you simply don't know what's coming, right? You don't really know where, uh, where you're going. And uh, also, so it happens with uh, many team members as well. And that's something to, to think about as also one of the, again, like sales directors we had used to say, Nikolai, we are new to this, so it's difficult to forecast. We don't really know like how to essentially give a six months or 12 months forecast. And um, to be honest, I have to say it's soft and bullshit as you always have and can benchmark yourself and the company against other founders and companies. And um, yeah, I guess, so one of the ways how to do it is to essentially have a mentor, have an advisor and people around you who've done it, who've seen it essentially work and surrounding yourself with the, with the right people is very important. And the reason it's important is because it helps you, in a way, set the right KPIs for yourself and um, benchmark yourself against uh, other founders, other CEOs in the space. And um, so I guess like I often like to ask again, like, what's going to make me a good leader, right? In 12 months and 24 months, 36 months. And what KPIs should I have in the company, right? And that's very important to benchmark with uh, mentors and uh, advisors. Yeah, it's hard to grow if you're not measuring things. Yeah, for, for me, it was really making sure that, yeah, we have the great people around myself. So I was, yeah, I was lucky enough to be surrounded by some of the best people, at least in Europe and the space, such as uh, JP Rangaswamy, and uh, who is a uh, former chief data officer of Deutsche Bank and chief scientist of Salesforce as well, and many, many others as well. And um but yeah, I would say like making sure you have the right mentors, advisors, the team members you can constantly learn from is uh, is key. And uh, yeah, also you know like asking about okay, like what do you need to, where do you need to get to, where do, where do you see my weaknesses are. This kind of you know like self awareness piece is is key. Right? It's, uh, it's very important for self development. That's really interesting. When did you start to realize that you needed to do that? that you might have like deficiencies and that you can learn from, well, you know, advisors, but when did you sort of really understand that, Hey, there's, there's places I'm lacking. I need to use advisors. And how was your experience with those advisors? For me, it was a little bit easier because in academia at, uh, during a PhD, you have a supervisor and that's essentially, well, the first essentially business mentor you have uh, before starting the, starting the business. And uh, there you kind of quickly understand again, like coming from a fairly sort of engineering sort of background, you 
clearly know where the gaps are and how to fill them, right? So you, and if you don't, right, so you ask your supervisor, you ask your peers to essentially help you out and uh, with, the, with the direction. And that's how things happen. And then, you know, like from, from that sort of, I realized that, yeah, it's super important to surround yourself with the people, smart people in the, in the field you can learn from. And uh, yeah, I used to go to maybe 10 or even 15 conferences per year to essentially, you know, like meet some of the great, greatest statisticians and uh, machine learning scientists in the space to simply, you know, like uh, learn from them and also see about, okay, like learn about the space, learn about the gaps in the space and what I can essentially learn from from them about those those gaps as well. Yeah, it seems like it was more of a natural fit given that you come from an academic background. Yeah, exactly. It happened it happened naturally as well that after I kind of you know like left Cambridge, I was like, hey I, mean, I need a supervisor. <laughs> yeah. I definitely had some very good experience with uh, different kinds of mentors and uh, advisors uh, during my academic career as well. And uh, I really wanted to bring it to the business and I felt it was quite natural to bring it to the business as well. Are you still using advisors? Oh yeah, absolutely. So we are right now actually forming a, an advisory board and yeah, bringing some of the, I guess, best people on board. Yeah, I can't really reveal all the names right now, but yeah, so one of them I already mentioned, so it's uh, JP Rangaswamy, who is a former chief data officer at, uh, of Deutsche Bank and chief scientist of Salesforce. And yeah, bringing some really exciting people right now as well on board. All right. So on the topic of you know surrounding yourself with the best people, can you tell me at what point you started making first hires and what roles you were hiring for? I think initially within probably every software business, you start with the engineering, engineering hires. Because yeah, I still kind of you know have to build have to build the product. Otherwise, it would have been like weird had you tried to hire, I guess, like salespeople before you know before see it or didn't see it, right? Right. You're the one making the sales, right? Exactly. I mean, to, to be to be fair, right? So I was actually you know like the first lines of code were written actually by me, you know. <laughs> but then uh, of course, yeah, I stopped doing it, and yeah, right now I'm not actually getting involved in writing code. Uh, but yeah, definitely participating in all the product sessions, sprint mm-hmm. planning sessions. Yeah, backlog, refinement sessions, etc. But yeah, the first hires were engineers. And uh, what actually helps, again, like coming from academic background is, you know, like trying to get someone from your network. So people we originally got were actually from Cambridge and from, from other universities as well. And simply because we really, I really knew and understood the, the space and uh, knew who to, who to essentially talk to about uh, potential candidates, potential opportunities. And yeah, this is where we got some people from. In terms of engineering, what helps, I guess, well, uh, we have to talk about it as well. I guess outsourcing stuff, you know, I mean, so this is uh, quite inevitable, which is, again, you you have to find someone who's going to, you know, like just help you out for some time, but at some point may not be able to join the company. And you kind of, you find with that, right? So you, you kind of know that, okay, like those people are going to be essentially helping well working on some of the bits of the of the product which again like not really much of ip related so you you understand that again they can be delegated to 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 engineers etc and yeah so that's uh, completely completely fine but yeah so first first hires were engineers i think three or four of them most of them again like from from connections and some of them using some kind of other resources like again like linkedin like network and uh, referrals as well mm-hmm. so while we're on the topic of engineers a lot of, uh, and and you know this is a question i think everybody's asking we've asked it several times during quarantine and lockdown when everyone's working from home i assume you guys are using a remote team can you tell me about you know your experience using remote teams and and any advice you might have 
Yeah, we've actually become more productive when the entire situation happened. People are always on time right now, never miss a meeting. And uh, like if meeting starts at 2 p.m., everyone is, uh, yeah, maybe one minute before that is already on the call, right? Whereas when you're in the office, people say, okay, can I, can I, sorry, can I get, uh, grab coffee? Can I grab some tea very quickly? <laughs> and um, and you, yeah. yeah, you often have, you know, like meeting eventually starts like 10 minutes late, you know? So we've definitely seen actually increased productivity initially. Having said that, we try to incorporate lots of elements to our culture, which allow us to replace some of the elements again, like before before the entire situation started, such as again, like right now, again, like you can't really read maybe body language, you can't really understand the energy level of different people. And we try to you know like introduce some of the, I guess, some of the measures such as, okay, we do stand-ups every actually second day. We don't do them every day because of uh, Zoom fatigue. And uh, so again, like this is one of the things we saw is that like, at some point people start, well, I guess the productivity starts to deteriorate because again, like every day you have to, you know, report on some si- sim- single thing you've done, you did yesterday. And we try to, you know, like extend this to maybe like every, uh, every other day, like for stand-ups. Then we try to introduce the so-called peer program so that everyone has a kind of peer, kind of buddy they can and talk to that helps a lot and uh, then also again like we're organizing some kind of offsites some social activities uh, as well to again like uh, make sure that everyone is uh, is connected and uh, part of the part of the team so the main challenge actually the main challenge is onboarding to be honest i haven't um, we are still you know like figuring figuring it out and uh, i guess yeah deciding on the the best strategy for us you know like because before the entire situation started there are so many ways how you can talk more about the company, about the vision, mission, etc., and uh, get people easily excited about it because they're kind of with you in the same room. You do some whiteboarding, you yeah, you tell them different stories, and that's that's easier. Right now, again, like it's has become a little bit uh, tricky and that's uh, definitely a challenge for us. And yeah, as of course we all understand is that hiring is uh, primarily about selling, right? So selling the vision to potential candidates and how they essentially make sure that everyone is aligned on it, uh, aligned on the vision, mission, but when they've never seen anyone else on the team. <laughs> to be honest, we had, we've had some, yeah, we've made some mistakes. Again, like uh, one of the colleagues we hired immediately after the entire situation started. And unfortunately, about maybe three or four weeks ago, uh, we decided that, okay, perhaps that's not the uh, best hire we've made. And uh, we had to, you know, like change things quite quickly. And the reason I think is that we couldn't really know, like, un- yeah, we could have, you know, like onboarded people a little bit, a little bit better. So make them really feel that, okay, they're part of the kind of this rocket ship and uh, we have this North Star. And yeah, so we are on a very sort of exciting journey. So really, you know, like, I guess uh, communicating the energy, transmitting the energy to employees uh, remotely is, is key and to be uh, still kind of, yeah, figuring out the best strategy to do it, actually. It's certainly a challenge. Speaking of challenges that that you are going through, can you tell me about some of the key product decisions that you had to make uh, early on? I think you know, like one of the main challenges for us was the alignment on the definition of done with our target customers, and we see it happening with uh, many founders and many companies right now. As a result, founders end up overpromising and then underdelivering without even realizing it, because I guess the axis of for measuring success are different for founders and, and customers. And this happens a lot, I guess, with uh, egoistic and uh, egoistic developers and narcissists. Like, hey, uh, we are building uh, like a rocket ship. Uh, of course, everyone is going gonna, is gonna to fucking love it, right? 
And um, yeah, at Synthesize, we, we saw that with uh, one of our early partners, again, like one of the largest insurance companies in Europe and key differentiators of our software are the quality of data we provide, uh, we provide and um, privacy guarantees. And uh, we measured the quality using some statistical metrics, some very sophisticated, advanced statistical metrics. And we measure, measure the privacy using advanced techniques from the information security theory as well. And of course, that's not how the client measured the quality of data. And of course, we didn't discuss it before shipping the software to them. And uh, the response from the client was like, hey, I mean, the data just is just not the same, right? I was like, well, I mean, it's not meant to be the same, right? Statistical metrics are, well, are similar, right? So one of the subsequent product decisions we made was that in our success criteria, we really kind of tried to write down in a measurable way what success looks like for both of us. And also, quite importantly, assign a dollar value to the success criteria. So some, something we have started doing only recently, but again, like making sure that not only we achieve this kind of metrics, whether it's uh, statistical metrics, data metrics, whatever other metrics you might think of, but also there is a clear sort of dollar value associated with that metric. And uh, I guess that sort of simple trick allows you to make sure that everyone is aligned, everyone working to make sure this is going to be successful, right? Because if you just say, hey, I mean, like our success criteria is that uh, the software is going to be easy to deploy, easy to use, uh, and uh, it's going to work, right? That's not, a, that's not a success criteria, right? So that's just, just a standard uh, description of the, of the software. But you really need to think about, again, okay, how the business, again, either generate more revenue or save some costs or something else, but really kind of assign some dollar value to that. And this is something we kind of try to think about, again, like the impact of, the, of having, from having our product right and uh, really kind of even like in terms of our roadmap incorporate some of those measurements into the product roadmap as well interesting that, that's fascinating stuff i'm not going to expand on it but i could because we don't have too much time i what are some of the key takeaways that you've learned on your entrepreneurial journey so far lots of things actually many things i've learned and uh, it's just been such a fascinating journey i probably got a degree and again like an mba from from again one of the top universities and uh yeah, I learned how to become a really good sort of HR as well and uh, think about operations and product product decisions as well, right? But in terms of you know, like some of the key learnings is that I guess when working with customers, emotions are quite important and really kind of this emotional connection with the, with the customer in B2B is actually much stronger than in B2C. And that was the learning for me because I always thought that, okay, hi, I mean, if you build the product, and it gives you the value, you have to buy it, right? I mean, so why, why do you buy it? But the thing is that, of course, I mean, it's uh, about how you present it, it's how you communicate the benefits as opposed to the features of the product. And again, for me, it was, okay, hey, I mean, like, it has such exciting features, amazing technical stack. You should definitely, you should definitely buy it. And that was quite a big learning for me. Then also, you know, like micromanagement, I think micromanagement may kill a growing stage, well, a late stage company. It's actually key for early stage companies. Really think about everyone in the team, making sure that you're not only the boss, but you're the friend and they can trust you and they can rely on you in difficult situations. And you're going to, you're just going to do it right. And that's quite a, such a sort of emotional boost as well. When you understand that, Hey, I mean, like these are, these are your friends, right? So this is kind of your family really. And I think there is a luxury of an early stage company, which is, okay, you still have time to spend with the people individually and you should do it right. Because again, like, yeah, we are very ambitious, right? And uh, those people are going to stay with us for 
for quite a while and they're going to essentially become heads of departments they're going to grow into c-level executives so you have to really kind of think about them as your friends and treat them as your friends probably some of the best friends you've had that's definitely been one of the important learnings for me as well awesome those are some great takeaways my only comment is uh the world would probably make a lot more sense if if everybody was statisticians and evaluating things based on logic and reason and, and, and emotion wasn't a part of it okay well thanks nikolai before we get out of here What's the best way for our listeners to reach you? Definitely reach out on LinkedIn or write me at Nikolai, N-I-C-O-L-A-I at Synthesize.io. And yeah, if you have any questions or would like to see the product, I'm super excited to show it to you. And Okay. Well, thanks, Nikolai. We're going to end the podcast there. If you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating. Thanks, Nikolai, for joining us today. Let's have you back on here soon to talk about all the things you guys are developing. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.